2: You might notice something different about the beginning of this show. That's all I'm going to say. I got nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, you guys. Welcome to the podcast that doesn't do it for the money. (laughs) <laughs> hence no lead-in sponsor right there didn't you notice that hey you guys it's the Packfiller podcast I'm Pat Bolger all by myself hey I'm trying out new microphones this week let me know what you guys think hopefully hopefully, you really won't notice anything I have been getting a little bit of popping in my headphones so it's a little bit they're more sensitive mics I know you guys don't really give a shit about this you just like Pat talk about bike racing but I, they're they're a little bit more sensitive, so I'm I'm used to being Mr. Radio guy right up close to the microphone like this. But these ones are more sensitive, so I can back off a little bit. But I got to remember that when I get loud, I have to back off even more, or or I'm gonna you know get a little popping through it. So I'm retraining myself. There. Does that work? You guys, it's here. It's here. I'm recording this on a pod uh, I'm recording this on a Friday. But you know what I'm talking about? The tour baby. The tour. The tour. You're likely listening, you know, and the tour is officially underway, right? Oh, it's here. We made it. I'm always so excited when the tour starts. And I have to be honest, I'm also so damn depressed when it's over. I know, I don't know why, but I think when the tour ends it almost seems like the end of summer is here already. Is that depressing? Is that a complete pessimistic way of thinking? Yeah, probably it is. Oh well, at least I got three weeks of daily racing to enjoy. And I don't want to bash people, but um, I, I I really need to find one of the European feeds, probably English-speaking ones. Um, I'd like I'd love to be able to listen to Sean Kelly, especially after talking to him on an earlier episode. I just think he I think he's got a great take on it. I mean no offense to our, our local our local our, our US broadcasters, but oh man. <sighs> Am I gonna say it? You guys I think f I think Phil's a little he's getting a little old. I know. I'm yeah, let he without sin cast the first stone, but I don't know. I just hear him repeating himself and sometimes getting things wrong and it's just
3: uh, is that bad to say?
2: Oh, well, I said it. There, it's out there. So much for me getting Phil on the show anytime soon anyway. What do you think? You got any thoughts? I'm not going to do any major predictions, you know, Froome, Contador, Quintana, hopefully not Nibali. I just don't like that guy. Here's what I'd like to see in the tour this year. I'd like to see Contador do something impressive in his last tour. I'd like to see Quintana attack every climb. I'd like to see Froome put into some trouble. So he has to go you know, he has. To, we have to see him pull something out. I don't think anything's gonna I think Froome's gonna win another tour. I'd like to see Nibali go home in some sort of a tear-riddled spasm. I don't want him to be hurt, but I just don't want him around. I don't like him. I don't like his team. I think he's a I think they're all just dickheads. I'd like to see Sagan every day in some way, shape, or form, either wheeling or, or winning sprints or, or attacking or doing something funny. The guy seems to get the joke. I'd like to see Mark Cavendish get a lot of second places and no interviews. I'd like to see an American win a stage. I'd like to see TJ surprise all of us. And I'd like to have zero doping worries. That's what I want. In other words, I want the perfect Tour de France. You know, that got me thinking recently. And stick with me on this one. I actually uh, watched Batman versus Superman the other day. I know you're thinking, "What is the hell does this have to do with anything? But I'm sure you guys know the movie. Many of you have seen it. Uh, it was Zack Snyder in his own specific directorial style, whether you like it or not took on Batman versus Superman. And you guys probably know my obsession with Batman. He's me. I'm just, I'm a huge Batman nerd. I'd heard the reviews on the movie. And to be honest, I was a little bit worried. As you, you probably know, the film wasn't reviewed too well. Ben Affleck uh, was a little depressed on the tail end of it. And the diehard fans kind of panned it. And so I didn't go out to the theaters and see it. I let the reviews get the best of me, right? So here it's out on iTunes the other day. The extended version. Yeah. Three hours. <laughs> three hours. Wow. It took up a whole night for me. I put it in at nine o'clock at night thinking, "Oh, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll rent that. Holy shit, it's three hours. Wow. Okay, I guess I'm staying up till tomorrow morning. And I watched it all in one sitting. Here's the deal: the movie wasn't really that bad, in my opinion. I mean, it wasn't like the be-all, end-all of human existence, but it really wasn't that bad. I think people just demanded too much. I think that that's the kind of what's happening these days. Everything has to doesn't it seem like everything has to be bigger, louder, more exciting, more expensive, and always better than the last one? You always have to up the quality for the next one, and and I think. Um, we as audience members are, are putting that pressure or demanding it or we go online and our little snippets that we're all able to be critics now in some way shape or form you add, a, you add a hashtag to something and all of a sudden it gets out there for everybody to see and everybody becomes a pro on critiquing and they tear apart the smallest thing and when does it become impossible to improve upon the last one when do we hit the ceiling? Now here's where I'm going to bring it back into cycling. I think it's a good comparison to what's going on in cycling. I think that's why doping was, is so rampant still. Think about this. Fans want exciting racing. Sponsors want fans. The money goes to the bigger, better, faster, more exciting races and riders. We get bored at the tour when some epic battle When it isn't some epic battle for seconds. Oh, God, you know, we're two weeks in, we're a week and a half in, and it's already basically over. The announcers don't admit to saying that, but we know, we see, unless something horrifically goes wrong, the tour's basically it. We're just fighting for stage wins right now. You know that? And the writers know this. They need to stay employed. Teams know this. They need to make sponsors happy enough to throw millions their way. So what's left if you can't give the teams and sponsors and fans what they want? Exactly. You have to find some way to make the the races more exciting. You have to find some way to uh, keep a team happy. Even when you physically as a writer, can't do it, what's left? Yep. You know what I'm talking about. Have we hit the ceiling? Think about this. Weren't the Lance Tours, before we all knew what was going on, try to put yourself back then. Whether you liked Mr. Armstrong or not, weren't those races epic and exciting? Think about those ones. They were great races. Have the Tours since then been as epic and exciting? I'm trying to think, I'm trying to reflect at what have the tours been like since that era, so to speak, came to a, a conclusion. Makes you think, doesn't it? Maybe we're the problem. Maybe the fans are the problem. We want every tour to be better than the Dark Knight or Deadpool or whatever you know f- n- comic book movie reference you want to throw out there. and and it's not like there we're going to suddenly be able to go out there and change. It's not like we're going to say like, "Oh, okay, you're right. I'll settle for a slower tour." because we've already had it. We've already tasted the good stuff. And now we're addicted to it. There's another drug reference. God, I'm good. It's going to uh, I don't have any answers. I'm just I'm just some idiot talking. I don't know, I want, an, I want exciting bike races, but what is the cost of that? Makes you think, right? Anyway, I'm kind of lack of motivated to, ri- to ride my bike this week. My local racing season series ended last week. I mean, this last Wednesday, in fact. And I'm trying to find a way. I think I'm. I think I might need a little bit of a break before I try to do a one more push before getting ready for, for Leadville. I don't know, maybe the tour will excite me. Maybe I'll you know imagine myself as a, as a rider like I used to when I was a kid. John Tesh music playing in my head. <sighs> Hopefully this is just a, one week slump. So you guys, John Stamstead is on the show today. I know here we're at the tour and we're talking to a, a mountain bike legend, but this is this is one that I've been i been trying to get together with John for a couple weeks now, and this man it was a cool talk being able to chat with him. This guy could flat out suffer longer than anybody else. If you knew of John's career, you knew that this guy was just a mutant. I recently announced an event that John was participating in. It was the 24 hours uh round the clock race here in Spokane, Washington fun race. I wish there I wish the 24 hour races would would kind of start to grow back into popularity again. It's just a fun venue, it's a fun event. Everybody's a little bit more laid back. And John was a really good guy. He he showed up there with FSA, his the company he works with and all their their great equipment, they were providing neutral support for the race. And they put in a team. Their team name, I don't know if this is at every 24-hour race, but at this one, people come up with some pretty interesting and in some cases kind of twisted names. So FSA, you guys all know, make carbon cranks. And so their team name was Your Mom Rides My Carbon Cranks. Team, Your Mom Rides My Carbon Crank. Crank. I think it was just crank. Your mom rides my carbon crank, which obviously has a, a penis and vagina kind of a reference, you know. And I had a tough time as the announcer getting myself up to say that team name numerous times on a sound system. There are kids there, you know, and, and probably a good share of uptight parents. And so I had a tough time saying their name, and I, I apologized to to John in the interview about that. I don't know. What do you What do you think? Maybe I think I just need to lighten the fuck up. I think I do. It's funny, you know. Maybe the kids won't get the reference. I don't know. It's just like when I'm 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 speaking at an event like that. I'm I'm announcing a race like that. I, I don't know. Maybe I should, I should check with the promoters before saying these things or the race director or something like that. Are you guys cool with me saying these kind of things? Um, I don't know. I think we're all too sensitive. I think I'm being too sensitive. I think I should probably get to the interview, right? Before I do, thank you to our friends at Man Can. Man Can. You got it. A brewery in your refrigerator. You get the little food-grade CO2. I got to go get some because I'm out of the food grade and I'm not using the stuff that I air up my tires with because I just think that would, you know, I'd I'd grow some sort of a horrific tumor not using food grade CO2. Could somebody tell me if there's a difference between the two? I would love to know. Or do they just stamp food grade on the side of the container? I don't know. Maybe the man can people are listening and will tell me about that what type I can use. They probably, they'll they probably just say buy it from us. I think, I think the man can people do sell it. Go to packfiller.com. Click on that link. Get yourself one of those beauty growlers. Go get it filled with delicious beer or even root beer. There's some brilliant root beers out there. Brilliant. Fill it up. Purge it with a little CO2 and you've got a brewery in your fridge. Oh, it'd be cool. Click on that link. And maybe they'll, maybe, maybe they'll send me a little cash this direction to pay for this wonderful microphone that I'm speaking to you through. That you're providing with my velvety tones. Shut the fuck up, Pat. Let's talk to John Samstead. All right, everybody. Cycling in its essence, let's let's admit, is a pretty simple activity. Once you get past the training, wisdom, balance... Simply the process of pedaling, right? Well, today's guest has taken that simple process and, in my opinion, turned it into a some sort of arduous art form. His name is synonymous with endurance cycling, pioneer of the 24-hour solo race, and is in the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame, just to name a few. If it sounds crazy and incredible endurance, he's probably done it. Let's welcome to the show John Stampstead. How are you, man?
0: I'm doing great, Pat. Thanks for having me.
2: Hey, well, you know, first of all, I got to say belated, even though I just found it out through the Internet. It's amazing how you can stalk somebody. uh, You know, belated happy birthday to you. Oh,
0: thank you. I appreciate that.
2: Well, it's not every day a man turns 25, right? (laughs)
0: Again, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. And um, also, secondly, I I do have to apologize for potentially not saying your team name um, enough at the recent 24 Hours Around the Clock event. Um, It's just that uh, it was difficult to stay with a straight face.
0: It was very funny. Like, we noticed, like, our team name doesn't really get mentioned very often here. <laughs> well, but we I, uh, we enjoyed it. I could I
2: can I can say to the uh, to the listeners that now, now that we're in a family free environment, it was your mom rides my carbon cranks was the name of your team. So um, that then
0: we all all of us happen to work for FSA components. Yeah. So we spend our days either making, selling, or doing something with carbon cranks. So yeah. it seemed both appropriate and. <laughs> good-natured humor for those types of events <laughs>
2: exactly hey speaking of which how'd that race go for you guys i didn't get to see you guys after it was all over
0: Uh oh, it was good you know we were just there to participate um you know i haven't you know ridden the bike much in ages and you know am not in good shape at all so we were just there to have fun <laughs>
3: well
2: good so you know let's let's get to it man um you've been putting yourself through pretty much endurance hell more or less since 1985 um what, what got you going in this? Was there some sort of a horrific superhero origin type of an accident that caused you to want to do this to yourself, or or how did it get going?
0: Um, I don't know. I remember, um, you know, like there is always, you know, like something that you kind of reach for, you know, like when you're a kid. I remember seeing an up-close-and-personal on Muhammad Ali and I remember hearing that he used to run three miles a day, and I just thought that that was such a massive distance that I couldn't even <laughs> contemplate that somebody could run three miles you know every day and like that was my goal like someday when I grow up like I want to be able to run you know three miles um I remember as a kid like going out and you know doing two laps around the block kind of thing um and then you get older, and, like, I, you know, I ran in high school, but, you know, just the normal stuff. And uh, then, I, you know, I bought a bicycle. A friend talked me into uh, riding, you know, touring out to Colorado. And um, while riding across Iowa and Nebraska, uh, I realized that I liked riding my bike all day. Because there's nothing to do in Iowa and Nebraska. Like, I brought a book to read <laughs> on this bike trip, and I was like, dude, we're riding dawn to dusk and we're just getting to Colorado as fast as we can. <laughs> um, but the end result was like, well, I actually like riding my bike 14 hours a day. This is fun to me. Um, so that, so then I did that. And then I heard about this race across Missouri, St. Louis to Kansas City and back nonstop. Um, so I did that and I did well. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I should apply myself, you know, to this and give it a try and, uh, I did. And then, you know, mountain biking, you know, that was yeah. what, I don't know, 85, 86, somewhere in there. And then I did that again in 88. And then mountain biking was kind of coming on. And I thought that was super cool. So then I kind of segued into mountain biking. because so those events were, you know, it's more interesting to, to do a long distance race on a mountain bike than it is to you know, ride around cornfields.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, what, what is it about that, that extreme distance that attracted you? I mean, because obviously there was never any, it doesn't sound like you started off as a road racer or anything particular. It just went, you went straight into those long distances. And was there something in particular that about that, that, that worked or was it just that, wow, I'm good at making myself suffer?
0: Um, well, like being good at anything makes you, you know, probably do it more so that, you know, there is that component to it, but you know, I've just never been, you know, I don't delve into things mild, mild, mildly. Yeah. It's either kind of all or nothing. And I thought, if you're going to race your bike, then, you know, do the hardest races, you know, on the planet or do the events that say they're the hardest. Um, so that was kind of my focus. focus. Um, and that's why I did the Missouri thing, because, I, you know, I would heard that that was the hardest thing you could do. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, I'll do that. And then, you know, at that time, Race Across America was big, so I did a Race Across America qualifier, and I won that. And then I was, uh, I was all geared up to do Race Across America, and then I couldn't, like, I couldn't pull the money together, you yeah. know, that spring, like, it's crazy expensive. Um, but my sponsor, uh, Bridgestone, uh, Grant Peterson, who was there, uh, he offered to send me to Australia and do the Race Across Australia.
2: Well, that, um, yeah, and that one was in '92, I, correct?
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, and that's you know almost all on dirt, kind of a dirt road. It's the original gravel grinder, you know. Actually, <laughs> um, and Grant Peterson doesn't get enough credit. That bicycle, the Bridgestone XO1, was the original gravel grinder, and it was just 20 years ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, uh, and then from that, I was kind of hooked on mountain biking, and you know, stayed with it.
2: And so that was when the t- transition happened. Was, d- there was never a race across America on your resume?
0: Never did it. And never that's, did it. Like, that was the whole reason that I started doing long distance was to do that. Like that was, I'm doing RAM. But then after I rode across Australia, I was like, if I can ride across Australia, like, I, you know, it's, not, it's no longer a challenge to ride across the U.S. with a motorhome 15 feet behind <laughs> me. <laughs> um, it just kind of, it, not that, you know, like anything is hard if you do it hard and like, you know, those were some of the best athletes ever, but it also just kind of paled, um, in terms of the challenge.
2: Well, from my research, that race, uh, across Australia, 3,500 miles, um, predominantly all, you know, gravel or even worse terrain. Um, sand how- lot of sand, sand. sand. Okay. Um, what, what were you, what did you take with you? Take us through some, some moments of that because that's, that's pretty epic. And I can only imagine the process of preparing yourself for something that like that. Can you prepare for something like that?
0: No, like, I mean, you, you know, you can't train that way. Like it's not sustainable. Um, I mean, in hindsight, you know, I would do some things differently, but I was only 20 something then. And, you know, you, you do those things to learn. Um, yeah. So it prepared me, you know, for other things. But so the race started as a stage race, a fully supported stage race. Wow. Um, so for the first 14 days, which took us halfway across, it took us to Alice Springs. It was a, you know, dawn to, you know, like an hour before dusk stage race. So I think we were doing, you know, 14-ish hours a day. Wow. Hard. Like pace line. Like this is a group of, guys and you're, you're riding it like it's a road race, but you're in sand and on washboards and people are crashing. And so it was crazy.
3: Good Um,
0: but then I got kicked out of the race for alleged, I was in the lead every day. I was in first place. Um, I got kicked out of the race for alleged defamation of character of the race director. (laughs) Okay. There's gotta be a story. (laughs) I made him, I made him write it down and I still have it in my journal. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's kind of a crazy long story. The guy was a little bit of a, you know, just a swindler. And, um, so I got kicked out. There was only a few, like just a handful of people left in the race. Cause it, the, it was a race of attrition. Okay. Um, I think at the halfway point, only seven people were still like officially, you know, in the results in the race. Um, and then when I got kicked out, all but two other people couldn't protest because it's really? not really a race if you kick the race leader out of the race for no good reason.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, but I wasn't just kicked out of the race; like I was left abandoned in Alice Springs. Like, you know, my stuff what? was removed from the caravan. What? Um, and I was left there. <laughs> and so where this gets better is, so I call up Grant Peterson at Bridgestone. <clears throat> And I say, hey, Grant, I know, <clears throat> I know you paid a lot of money for me to come over here and do this race. And I was doing really well, and it's been really fun. But I got kicked out.
2: Oh, my God.
0: And I need you to wire me, I don't know, the $1,000 so that we can buy a car and get some people to crew for us. And my friend Henry and I can finish the ride because, you know, we weren't giving up. Like, I, I, <laughs> I went there to, you know, to ride my, <clears throat> my bike across Australia, and that's what I was going to do. Um, so he did. <clears throat> and what I loved was <clears throat> he said, just make it a good story. <laughs> oh, God. So the second half of the continent, we rode Ram style. So we had a support car that followed with us, and we rode you know as nonstop as we could. I think the last three days were... 22, 23, and then 27 hours to
3: the finish.
0: Oh, my. Wow. After, you know, 14 days or seven days, I guess, seven or eight days riding 14 hours a day.
2: Oh, my God. Now what what happened? To keep track of it. There. Yeah, what happened to the rest of the of the what was left of the race at that time? Were you were you still basically riding the so-called course at the same time as these guys or was it just a you
3: know? Yeah,
2: so they so
0: they two people, I think it was two, um Pat somebody and Drew Walker um they continued on like as official people in the race, with okay. the caravan and Everything, um, and then the other folks like us were, you know, we spent two days getting everything together, like getting a car, getting supplies, because you, you yeah. can't. You, not only can you not just ride across Australia, you can't just drive across. We had a fifty-five gallon drum of gasoline, you know, in this crappy van, and cases of oil, and then like food, water, like <laughs> everything you're going to need for what you don't even know lies ahead of you. Um, so that was like a huge logistical undertaking um, uh and uh, a famous uh, Elaine Muriel, who was in the race she's a former winner of the race across yeah. America, yeah, she had dropped out earlier in the race, and then her and her friend Joanne they crewed for myself and Henry Kingman for the second half. <laughs> oh, shit. which crewing for us was arguably just as hard as riding it. <laughs>
2: Oh man! So did you completed it? Did the other guys complete it at all, or was it just... Uh, I mean, did the race just turn into a complete disaster?
0: So the two people that had two day head start on us, we almost caught them, but didn't.
3: Oh man! Well, we came
0: close to catching them. Um, and then we so that, those two made it, we made it, and then. Uh, Jamie Carr and there was another group of like three or four they started probably another day or two behind us uh, and they made it so I believe seven people of the original 50 made it across
2: oh my god well that now did you ever get to uh face to face with this with this so supposedly defamed um race director at any given point in time afterwards
0: and No, because he was was threatening me with legal action. Like, this was, we were on Australia's version of, you know, Tom Brokaw's news, evening news (laughs) over there. Okay. Like, it was a big, you know, it's Australia, but it was a big deal. Like, we were national news in Australia with everything that was going on. And he was threatening me with lawsuits. Oh, my God. So, everybody said, yeah, just keep your mouth shut. Don't, you know, don't say a word. Just. (laughs)
2: Just nod and, and, assume, and
0: assume that people can figure it out or whatever. Yeah.
2: Oh my God.
0: Um, so no, I never, I never spoke to him, or I don't think I ever. No, I never saw him again. <laughs> and
2: I'm sure, uh, and
0: I haven't, haven't really spoken to the two racers who stayed in the race. I thought they were um, opportunists. Yeah. Let's
2: say. Okay. No, I, I, yeah, that's a good way to phrase it. That's a good way to phrase it. So that that is is something that's that's obviously legendary, and here. I also think in one of your other finest moves um, was in 96 at the 24 Hours of Canaan, where you basically invented the 24-hour the solo category.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. Yeah, I do not take any credit for inventing it. Um, People have been doing 24-hour events for, you know, for forever. Um, And there were a couple of guys, one Canadian guy who did it, who entered a, you know, 24-hour relay race, you know, before me. And I'd even done, uh, I did Montezuma's Revenge, like in
2: 88
0: or 89. Really? Which is, you know, it's a non-relay. It's like, it's just 20, and that's, that is by far the hardest 24 hour mountain bike race that there has ever been. Um, but it's solo only. And it was kind of, I wouldn't say underground, but people just didn't know about it. But so I got popularized, um, at the 24 hours of Canaan for entering under you know, four versions of my name. Cause the race director wouldn't let me, he did not have a solo category and didn't want one. Um, <laughs> but I, massaged him, uh, Laird Knight <laughs> was the race director, and uh, convinced him that I'll pay four entry fees. I don't think he can say <clears throat> no to that.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. So this wasn't, this wasn't something that was done all by you know clandestine and behind the scenes, and at never any point did he, was he unaware that you were doing it solo?
0: No, I told him. So okay. I tried for two years, and he wouldn't let me do it, so then I raced as a team. And then finally, the third year, I was like, Laird, you got, you know, here's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm sending in an entry fee. I'm paying, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm paying four entry fees. I don't think you can say no to that. <clears throat> and he kind of laughed. And just and went with it. said, all right. <laughs> and we'll obviously, what that,
2: that went pretty well. You beat quite a few teams.
0: Yeah. Like doing it solo, like, you know, I usually finished, you know, I could beat, you know, maybe half of the team somewhere, somewhere in that vicinity.
2: Wow. You know, this is uh, in, I, I, this is one of my observations that happened at some of these 24 hour races where I'll see people, uh, do the solo category. I'll see people in larger teams and stuff like that. Um, the solo category is obviously something within itself. It is, um, it takes a, a, an effort all of its own. Um, But I've always thought that the two-person team is one of the tougher categories because with a solo, if you're thinking, crap, i got to rest, I'm going to sleep, you can do that. You have one other person relying on you. Sometimes it seems like that two-person can sometimes be more of a guilt challenge and a mental strain.
0: Oh, I think the two-person is by far the hardest. You do? You know, physically and, you know, mentally. It's like, all right, do you do, do you switch every lap, you know, yeah. and strategically, yeah. all right, do you do a couple of laps? Like, do you do six-hour segments or, you know, what's the best way to, what's the fastest way to do it? And then, um, yeah, when you have a teammate, you're stressed out. Like, you don't want to yeah. let your teammate down. Um, you know, you can't just kind of settle into your own pace. And, you know, if you feel like quitting, quit. Like, no, somebody's yeah. You can't, uh, you know, you've got somebody depending on you. No, I think the two-person is super hard. I've never done one, but um, I would imagine it is incredibly challenging.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've done a four, and that's, that's a piece of cake almost. It's, it's it's more of a party when you get up to that size because you've got, depending on the course size, you know, you've got a good break in between every lap or, or every shift that you're doing.
0: Right, and like at Spokane, I mean, we had yeah. a team of, what, seven. Yeah. That's not really rough, you no. know, like. You can sleep. That's plenty of time to sleep. You can eat. You don't have to worry about eating on your bike. You can get through a lap, no yeah. problem. No, so that was very recreational and fun. Um, but, yeah, it's not the same as you know, a four-person or a two-person or solo. Yeah.
2: What do, different, what do you think it— different animal. What do you think, speaking of different animals, what do you think um, it takes to be, be such an extreme endurance type of an athlete? That style is not something you— you know, it's, it's not like training for a marathon. It's not like training for road or mountain bike, cross country racing. It It is a beast all of its own. And what type of an athlete is the type who can excel at
0: that? And how do you, how do you do it? Well, you know, I would say even like bike racing, you know, just as a whole is very challenging. Like I once, you know, had somebody, you know, email me or call me and say, you know, Hey, you know, John, I'm thinking about becoming a professional bike racer. You know, how do I do that? And of course, my answer is, there is no think. <laughs> <sighs> it's either you're possessed and you have to do it, or you're not good enough, or you don't have the mental makeup. There is no try.
2: To quote the great Yoda, yeah, there is no try, only do. Exactly. So,
0: but... um And not everybody can. Like, you know, most people don't have the talent. Like, it's an extremely, um, you know, small, you know, percentage that can do it, but um, you have to at least try.
2: Does it become more of a mental game? You have
0: to have that... Yeah, you have to have that burning desire. Yeah. Just burning desire. Um, You know, talent isn't... Talent is not enough. You know, just because you're good, like, you know any level of cycling really involves so much suffering that you can't just be good. Like you have to be, it has to be your passion. It just has to be.
2: Yeah. Because everybody's going to, at some point in time in an event, in a career, in a season is going to say, Oh, screw it. I can't do this anymore. But I guess that's what separates the specific levels of, of achievement.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are, you know, There are tons of, you know, junior racers who did really great, who had all kinds of potential, who never amounted, you know, to anything. Um, You've got to have more than physical talent.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: You have to have the physical talent. Like, it's not like, you know, people, you know, love to ask, you know, what's, you know, is it more mental or physical? Well, it's 100% physical, and then it's 100% mental on top of that. Like, you have to have, you have to have both. I mean, the the physical talent is, like, you don't even enter the conversation. You're not even, you know, probably in an elite race without that. Yeah. But then once you have, like, there isn't that much difference in physical talent, you know, at, at the high end. Like, then it's like, all right, who wants it more? Who trained harder? Who prepared better? You know, it's all of the super little things.
3: Yeah
2: and some elements of luck obviously you know did everything work out mechanically uh, nutritionally are you did you get sick or something like right. that
3: yeah yeah
0: well no especially like in mountain biking you know there is some fortune that plays into it you know you don't want your bike to break you don't want your derailleur or you know to have problems and so it's you know it's more complex there's more things going on you don't want to have a bad stomach day yeah um, a million things
2: well and and thinking along those lines of good and bad luck the um I did a sport race in Alaska it was obviously yours to own during the nineties um What was it about that race that was so special and and especially suited for you?
0: I loved the adventure, so that you know like you you need to make good decisions at three a m when you're at a frozen lake. And you're not sure where the trail starts again on the other side of that frozen lake because all the wind, all the snow has been blown off by the winds. Oh God! Um, and you know, and there's like you know that was a low you know kind of overhead race. Like nobody's really looking for you. Like they <laughs> will eventually, but it'll, it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's you know, like if you do nothing wrong. You know, there's nothing dangerous, you know, about doing it. But that's easier said than done. Yeah. It's easy to make mistakes. Like, and it's just, you know, it's the, uh, you know, the book or the film, you know, to build a fire. Yeah. It's not the huge (laughs) mistake that gets you. It's you make one small mistake and then that leads to another. And then that leads. And then at a certain point you have a cascade. Okay. um, And then you're in just a deep, deep hole. Like that's how those things go bad.
2: What um what were now I'm trying to think back to my Velo News and all of the images I saw of you in those races. What was the equipment use like? There's there were no fat bikes at the time. And so for
0: Um, we had double rims. Um, you know, this guy Sam Simon uh Rackauer in Fairbanks was welding, you know, two Weinman or uh, two Bontrager twenty twos together, so we had forty four millimeter wide rims. Wow. And then it was whatever, like the Ritchie 2.35 was a big tire. Later on, it was the Moto 2.4 from WTB. Um, but, like, that was, that's what you had. Okay. Or, you know, what I had access to at that time.
2: Yeah. So you've been with, um, in my mind, at least, endurance cycling, really since its, it's true growth, in, especially here in, in the United States. Um, in your opinion, what has, has changed about it? Is, it? is it just the equipment? Obviously, we're seeing, we saw the growth and the birth of that 24-hour style of format, um, and we've seen the decline in that style of racing. Um, what have you seen that both has been good and bad for the sport of endurance cycling?
0: Oh, I think the technology with the equipment has changed. Yeah. Like, um, they just finished the uh, Great Divide um, race. Yeah and like that guy did it insanely fast. I think it was 14 days, I'm not sure, which is days faster than I did it back in 99 when I first did it. But it's like, you know, and I look at it, like when I did it, I had a state-of-the-art, I was sponsor, at that time I was sponsored by North Face, I had a state-of-the-art Gore-Tex jacket. Even after I cut the hood off, it still weighed more than a pound. Wow. You know, like everything now is, like less than half that Everything is half, you know, every piece of, like I had a two pound sleeping bag. There is no one, like even the average people doing that event, nobody's carrying a two pound sleeping bag. Um, okay. and I had a bivy sack and, and then my lighting system, the best, the only lighting system at that time that would work because you have to, you know, be buying batteries along the oh, way. Yeah. I had a 5D cell <laughs> battery pack from Knight Rider to a 5-watt halogen bulb.
2: Oh, my God.
0: 5-watt halogen <laughs> is like your iPhone, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's basically your iPhone, you know, flashlight. Um, and now it's like you're running lithium batteries. You can get lithium AA's at any gas station, or you can probably mail them, you know, places. And, you're, those, you know, I'm sure these guys are running like 500 lumens at night or I'm not sure what the state of the art light for something like that is now, but like, it's, you know, it's probably a quarter the weights, double the output. Um, but, and like, you know, people are riding carbon 29ers, which is way faster. All of that is, you know, it's awesome to the sport. Like that's the, that's the fun part is you can go bike camping now and the bags, you know, like, the gear bags are a thousand times better. Um, You know, that's, you know, the way you carry your, your, you know, your weight on the bike. Yeah. Um, It's made bike packing accessible to the average person. And like, and just with the combination of all of the gear and the bikes, I think it's a cool sport, like recreationally or racing. It's improved it dramatically. Like the average person could go, mountain biking and do an overnight like on a weekend like most people don't have tons of time but they could go mountain biking do an overnight and it wouldn't be hard and they can like it's still the sport of mountain biking like if you put front and rear racks and panniers on a mountain bike like it's you know it's you can't ride the same trails no like if you're carrying 50 pounds of stuff like you're not really mountain biking like you can do a dirt road You can do a bike path.
3: No, yeah. You're you're... not
0: riding crazy single track. Whereas these days, you can ride any trail fully loaded because fully loaded is like, it's just nothing. God. Okay. The weight isn't enough to matter. I mean, it slows you down a little bit, but it doesn't throw your bike off. It doesn't ruin, it doesn't ruin the experience.
2: Yeah. It doesn't take you, like you said, I mean, a single track with that kind of weight on it, you just, you'd be walking the whole time because you wouldn't be able to control your bike.
0: Right. Yeah. Like, you know, low rider panniers don't really work for mountain biking. No, exactly. So you, can yeah. you can't do it.
2: Do you think, um, and in, even, go ahead. No, uh, you go ahead. Well, do you think endurance racing um, gets the credit and the notoriety it deserves? I know, like I said, we had a big boom of 24-hour races um, several years back. A lot of those have disappeared. We're seeing some of these other ones come up like you're, you're talking about and some of the you know events like focused around the Leadville Series um, coming up. But do you think it's, it's going in the right direction?
0: Mm, you know, it should go in whatever direction, you know, works. Um, you know, I think it'll end up like the big one day events, like, you know, these in the road side, it's the grand fondos, you know, that are pretty big. So I think we'll just have mountain biking grand fondos and maybe some of these will be gravel grinding, you know, grand fondos. That's cool. Nothing wrong with that.
2: Okay, no, because I, I, um, I do hear some people talking you know, about the death of certain aspects of the sport, and I, you know they're pining for the old days and things like that. And then I'm hearing some who are saying, you know, our future lies in events like fondos and events like that where you can challenge yourself against the course, not, okay, I've gotten dropped, now the race is over.
0: Right. Um, you know, if it were me, if I were still doing it, you know, I would be doing whatever wasn't cool, most likely. <laughs> you know, that's just kind of the way I roll. Um, but not to say, like, I've done, you know, I've done a bunch of one-day, you know, events. Those are awesome, too. I like them. They're super fun. Um, so it's just, you know, it, there, it, there's at least a choice for people to do. Like, when I started, you know, not even started, but, like, even, like, at the end of my career, like, 2000 was the last year that I raced. Like, maybe that was the first year that, or maybe there was a year or two in there, but I did basically every major event, like endurance event that there was. And then, like, you know, 10 years after that, like 2008, like, there were 100. Like, there's, like, no one could do them all. Like, it was impossible. That's a cool thing. And then now it's kind of filtered down to, you know, maybe a more sustainable level, like everything booms and then, you know, kind of comes back. Um, but yeah, when I did it, there was, you know, hardly any events.
2: Yeah. Okay. So, and, and to, as my listeners know, ad nauseum, I'm going to, I get to be a little self-serving because, um, I'm doing my first Leadville this year and you won the first edition of that race. What are your thoughts on, on that race and how it's grown and the, the monstrosic beast that it has become?
0: Well, I think it's super cool. Uh, And, you know, I love those folks, um, you know, that that put it on. Um, It was really fun for me to do it, you know, especially in the early years. Yeah. Um, I think it's just a great, you know, Leadville is a fantastic town. And it's just, it's a thrill to do that event. It really is. The whole town rallies around it. Everybody has fun. You know, if yeah. you're fast, you can go fast. If you're not, you know, it's still a good adventure.
3: Okay.
2: Um, and, and would you offer any advice for, for an average schmuck like me?
0: Um, general advice is eat more than, go out slower than you, than you want to. Okay. Everybody, everybody goes out way too fast. And there's two problems with that. One, you know, the obvious is lactic acid. Um, But the bigger problem is it's hard to eat, you know, when you're bouncing on a mountain bike. Yeah. And if you go out slower, like if you go out super fast, you're probably, you know, going to burn through your glycogen. And then, you know, let's say you bonk. Oh, God. Well, now you've got to eat twice as much. Cause you're, you're not just trying to maintain, like you you're trying to replenish yeah. some of your glycogen stores, but you're also at a pretty high effort and you're bouncing up and down. That's where people have stomach problems and they usually blame their foods. Like, Oh, you know, I got a bad stomach at X event cause I was eating you know, yeah. whatever specific like, you know, brand the food or something, actually yeah. wasn't it. It was the, it, it was the situation. That's what made your stomach go bad. Um, so if you go out slower, then you can, you can stay even with your, you know, calorie burn, like you can eat moderately, you know, you can, you can, you know, stay, you know, have a level blood sugar, you'll go way faster. It's hard to do mentally because everybody's gung-ho, everybody's rested and feels like a million dollars at the starting line and you can take off and you're like, I don't even feel a thing like this is... yeah. Easy effort. Well, you're still like you're still going fast, and probably faster than you should be.
3: Yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: <laughs> and if you go out slow, you can always ride hard at the end.
2: Yeah. Great point. So, what brought you? What brought you over to um, FSA? By the way, you know, I, you've been there for a bit and things like that. And how did, how did that line up?
0: Um, I was an independent sales rep. You know, well, outside okay. sales rep, and yeah. then I just wanted to get off the road and stop traveling. And this <laughs> opportunity happened to present itself, so I work for them now full-time, and I don't have to travel, and it's awesome for me and spending time with my kids. And That's right, yeah. Now I bike commute. I was going to you know? say,
2: yeah, do you get to ride much? Is it just the, the commute, or is it, here I saw you at the race the other day, is there anything that you you're preparing for, or is it just, I'm enjoying it?
0: Um, well, I'm going to try, like, I haven't done anything for a few years. Like I just needed, I had some arthritis issues with my knees and I took a few years off, got kind of fat and now I'm trying to get back into it. And I've been commuting. I started June 1st and I've ridden, my commute is, it's 25 miles each segment. So it's 50 a day. Wow. And I've ridden every day, every work day in the month of June. And I think I'm going to keep that up through the summer and just kind of build up my, you know, my base. And then we'll see what I want to do. Like I might, like, I don't, I don't need to race, but you know, there might be some cool trails that I want to ride or, you know, just adventures. Like that's what I look for. Like, I don't need, I, you know, I did everything I wanted to do in racing, but there's still a lot of cool stuff out there. Yeah. I'd like to have, just go out and have fun and explore. Like, you know, I'd like to be fit enough to explore and, you know, do some cool things. So we'll see if that works out. But I like that. So far, like I've ridden every, you know, what, what's today, the 28th? I've ridden 1,000 miles this month. That's not too bad.
2: Good God, yeah. Man, I'm training for something, and I think you got me beating miles. So <laughs> now I'm worried. <laughs> <laughs> Well, is the, I guess one of my last questions is I had somebody ask me this. Um, was there anybody along the way that really got you influenced in your career? You mentioned at the outset it was Muhammad Ali to see him running three miles a day. Was there anybody that you went, wow, I want to be with that guy or I want to beat that guy or something like that along that?
0: Um, Pete yeah, who was one of the original pioneers in Race Across America um, and one of my proudest practice records so the was it the first trying to think if it was the first year i did the bike across missouri I mean, we're talking like 20 30 years ago so things get rough but i i think he was there i couldn't make the lead group but he set the record um and like i was so upset that i like you know i couldn't make that you know cut But then, I think it was a year or two later, I went back and I broke their record. So I was really, like, really, you know, proud of that. Um, And I have tons of respect uh, for Pete Pensiers. And then uh, Bob Forney. Uh, Bob Forney was also a Race Across America winner, but he also did the mountain biking and adventure racing. He did, I did sports. Um, He kind of did everything. And so I really, when I started, I really looked uh, to him, kind of followed, you know, copied, took his advice. And I know him, like I know Bob. I haven't talked to him in years, but at that time I knew him pretty well.
2: They still ride, you think?
0: I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Pete Penseers is probably pretty old yeah. these days. I'm, I'm always I don't wondering think that. Bob is too much older than me, but Pete Penseers is, that dude's probably 70. Yeah. I don't know.
2: I've always wondered that because it's always seems. But I'll that, bet he's
0: the fastest. Whatever age he is, I'll yeah. bet he's the fastest seventy-year-old there
2: is. Oh yeah, and that's the thing. I've I've always thought that um, a cyclist might retire, but they never really completely quit. Hmm. I mean, at least yeah. some, at least several of the ones I've talked to, a lot of the guys just they, you know they they might put their bike away for a long time, but some of them, but the, it's still a part of you to a certain extent. Do you experience the opposite?
0: No, I needed a break. I I mean, I did trail running for a number of years. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, at a pretty good level um, because I just needed a change, and I loved trail running. So I did, you know, I was running 100-mile trail runs and had a ton of fun with that. And then, like, the last few years, I took a break, probably needed it, you know, physically. Yeah. Um, And now, you know, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, might be a good time to get back into it. My knees feel super good. If it works out, I'll probably stick with it. Yeah,
2: well, and, and running
0: you know, or biking. Like I don't, I don't even care which.
2: Really? Oh God! My probably,
0: run- I'll probably I'll do a combination of the two.
3: Oh boy.
2: Okay. My running usually only consists when I'm being chased by somebody. Just I'm running, and I have never gone. <laughs> well. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Um this is this has been good. I I like this and um you know and just to hear that it's you know coming from somebody with your background and your experience that, you know, what it takes to to compete at that level, you must have had um that just that drive to do something that truly I guess it wasn't you were constantly trying to test yourself, but it was just to see how much farther you can. I guess that is a test. I don't know. What do you think?
0: Um Yeah, I mean, what I, you know, would say back then was I was trying to find the event that broke me. Okay. Um, But, you know, of course, it's like, there is no event, like, no course is harder than any other course. The course just is. It's your, you know, it's how you adapt to it or relate to it mentally. Like, if it's brutally, let's say, hilly, well, you're just going to go slower. That doesn't mean it's harder. (laughs) It just means it's slower. But most people would say that, like, a hillier course is harder than a flat one. And I say the opposite. They're exactly the same. It's your, you know, you have to be okay. Like, you know, in some mountain bike events, pushing your bike just crushes most people, crushes them. Like, it destroys them mentally. Whereas, like, if you're just, like, there's certain courses you can't ride the whole thing. You just can't. Nobody can. Or it's not fast or whatever. Or like especially in Alaska, like if it snows, you're not riding your bike, you're pushing your bike. You have to be okay with that. Wow, okay. And it's the same, you know, it's the same for everybody. I think but that not everybody handles that stress the same way.
2: Wow, okay. I, I, think, I think that helps. <laughs> I don't know if, we're, if, this was, if I was in this for a, a personal therapy session or not, but that actually helps Maybe especially in terms of what you know, training for something like this and, and the unexpected. Just be ready, I guess, for something. If it is unexpected, just take it in stride and keep going.
0: Exactly. You, you can't do anything else. You have no choice. Right on. Okay. Especially in a sport like mountain biking where you can't control you know, Mother Nature, and that has a huge effect on it. Like, road racing, even if it rains, you're not that much slower. If it rains in a mountain bike race, you're a lot slower. Yeah. And everything changes. You know, stuff that you could ride, now you can't ride. Um, wow. You have to do more bike maintenance. Like, there's a you know, ton of things going on that you can't predict.
2: I I sure hope there's a book coming from you in the future or something like that because um, words of wisdom would be a, a, a great thing to to have from somebody with your experience level and and your men, mental take on it. Have you done any coaching over the years or anything like that?
0: No, no, nope. no. I never wanted to coach. I would like to write a book, but yeah, I didn't want to do coaching.
2: Well, I'll, I'll tell me when the book's out. I'll be, I'll be in first in line to get it.
0: Well, that's generous of you to say. Thank
2: you. <laughs> no, hey. And uh, again, thanks for your time, man. I appreciate you. We had a tough time kind of making this happen, and I appreciate your flexibility in, in being able to sit down and have a little time to talk to me.
0: Yeah, anytime I can do anything, just let me know.
2: We have not seen the last of John Stamstead. He can just keep going. He is the Energizer Bunny of cycling. The guy, 50-mile commute every day. <sighs> I have a tough time getting motivated to come downstairs. And this guy's doing 50 miles a day. Oh, God. And I got, you see, I used it for selfish purposes. I got advice on how to make it through Leadville. Mm hmm. People say podcasting doesn't pay off. Suck on that one. I get to talk to my heroes and I get almost kind of little touches of free coaching. <laughs> You guys enjoy the Tour de France. Send me your thoughts on what you think is going to happen in the tour. If you if you haven't already gone too far into it before listening to this episode, if you're listening to this way after the tour is long since gone, where the hell have you been? Um, I've got. Uh, I'm not just going to keep talking to mountain bike riders. In fact, I just finished up an interview with um, Ivan Dominguez recently, the the Cuban missile himself. So we're going back to the roadies. And we'll probably get some Tour de France perspective as we go throughout the next couple weeks. Um, Don't hesitate to head over to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, uh, give us a ranking, those types of things. Send me your thoughts through Facebook, Twitter, what else? Shit, Instagram. God, it's so much. It's so busy. And I'm not going to do Snapchat because I'm over the age of 40. And if you're over the age of 40 and you have a Snapchat, chances are you're a pedophile. That's just my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. We will catch you guys next week. See you later.
1: Hold up.